2. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened by those without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are, you are going through the same struggle you saw ahead and now here, that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Semi, very much indeed. Well, uh, twice a year we have a members' meeting in the church, and uh, the second members' meeting of this year happens immediately after this service. Um, and we're looking forward to welcoming some new members, some new associate members, making one or two uh, changes to the Constitution. We'll give you a brief overview of our finances and an update on what we've been doing by way of word ministry through the year. Um, it's a members' meeting, but all of you are invited. Uh, the service is therefore just a fraction shorter than it would normally be. So what will happen is at the end of the service we'll do a lightning turnaround grab your coffee, return to your seats, and we'll get straight on with it. But now, let's have our Bibles open, please, at the passage which Semi read for us, and um, I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Well, the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the privilege of an open Bible. What we know not will you teach us. What we have not will you give us. And what we are not will you make us. And we ask these things for Christ our Savior's sake. Amen. Have you ever, I wonder, uh, received a gift that changed your life? Uh, was there perhaps a moment when somebody gave you a gift and all of a sudden absolutely everything was different? It might perhaps have been an unexpected financial gift, maybe from a relative or from a friend. Uh, you had no idea it was coming, but when it did, suddenly the leak in your roof or the broken cell phone or the car repairs were no longer the overwhelming problem that they had been before. I guess for some of us, uh, getting married was a gift that changed our lives. Uh, friends would say to us that... Um, 
we're different. Marriage has changed us. And of course, uh, marriage is not only a gift, it is a mystery. Uh, I wonder if perhaps some of you have seen that rather marvelous cartoon in which an elderly man is talking to his elderly wife and he says to her, Martha, after all these years, you're still a mystery to me. And with a smile, she replies, actually, my name is not Martha, it's Margaret. Um, In his book, The The Mystery of Marriage, uh, the author Mike Mason describes the process uh, of adjusting to marriage as uh, rather like having a tree growing in the middle of your house. Literally, everything changes. You know, wherever you want to go in the house, the tree's there. You've got to walk around it. You can't ignore it. Everything in your life is forever different. And in exactly the same way, the gospel is a gift that changes your life. And Paul, of course, has been coming back to this again and again in the first chapter of Philippians. So if you glance back to verse 5, he spoke there, didn't he, about their partnership in the gospel. In verse 7, he describes his ministry as defending and confirming the gospel. And in verse 12, contrary to everything we might think, his being in chains has actually served to advance the gospel. But what is the gospel? You know, it is surprisingly easy, isn't it, to be around church people, Christians, without ever really grasping what the gospel is actually all about. Simply put, the gospel is God's free gift that will change your life. It's free. That means you can't earn it. It's a gift. Which, which means that it's given to us. And uh, the gospel or the good news is the message of how God freely rescues human beings like me and like you from all the terrible consequences of sin. How does God do that? He does it by sending his only son, the Lord Jesus, to live the life that we should have lived under God and to die the death we should have died or should die for rejecting God. So Jesus died to pay the penalty for all of that, and then he rose from the grave having defeated sin and death and hell, and now he offers a brand new life to all who would turn from rejecting God and would turn towards him in faith. That's the gospel. And the key thing that we need to underline again and again is that it's not something that we can ever earn. It's a gift. We can only receive it, receive it freely. And that is the key thing to know about the gospel. It is a free gift. And the other thing to grasp is that once we've received the gift... Our lives change forever. Uh, Far more than getting married or receiving a financial windfall, the gospel changes your life. Now, obviously, it changes 
our future life, our life after death. Because it saves us, doesn't it, from an eternity of separation from God and from everything good. And instead, we look forward to an eternity with God in a perfect new creation without any of the horrors that we see all around us every day. So it changes our future life. But last week, we saw that in this present age, the gospel isn't simply a kind of breakdown service that kicks in when we hit a crisis of some kind. No, no. It has a profound effect on every aspect of our life here and now. Now, that is the truth at the heart of our passage this morning. So please look down with me again at verse 27. The Apostle Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now I need to tell you that the phrase translated, whatever happens, is literally in the original language, one thing one thing. And it's as if the Apostle Paul sort of taps the microphone and uh, is saying to everybody, now, okay, St. Barnabas, uh, if you've dozed off, if you've started to think about Sunday lunch, come back to me now and grasp the one big thing you simply must get hold of. Uh, Significantly, I think this is the first command in Philippians. And if it's the first command, it must be super important. So what is the one big thing that God expects of you and of me? Well, it is to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now again, Paul uses a really interesting word here, which the NIV has translated by the phrase, conduct yourselves. Now elsewhere in his letters, Paul says things like, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, or walk in a way worthy of the gospel of Christ. But the word that he uses here comes from the Greek word for city. Uh, It's the word polis. Uh, It's the word that lies behind our English word politics. Now Paul hardly ever uses this word, actually never uses it outside Philippians. There's just one other place in the letter where he does and it's chapter 3 verse 20. You might just like to turn over the page and have a look at it. Chapter 3 verse 20, Paul says there, our citizenship is in heaven. And that word citizenship has the same root as the phrase conduct yourselves in chapter 1 verse 27. So if you're still with me, I know it's a bit bit confusing, but if you are still with me, and I hope you are, the idea in chapter 1 verse 27 is this. In all your dealings here on earth, and especially with your brothers and sisters at church, Live as citizens of heaven. By the way, uh, this idea, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, 
doesn't mean that we can in any sense earn the blessings of the gospel. Rather, it means living in a way that commends the gospel, recommends it. So if you like, just as we want Cyril Ramaphosa to conduct himself in a way that is worthy of the office of president, so too Christians are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the status of freely saved people. We are to be the people that God has declared us to be in the gospel. So not merely citizens of the Republic of South Africa or South Sudan or South Korea or wherever it happens to be. No, it's about living here as citizens of heaven. You see, in the gospel, what's happened is that you and I have been given the paperwork, the visa, the passport that gets us into heaven. It's been given to us as a free gift. Uh, There's no question of queuing for it for weeks in an embassy, uh, waiting for the visa to arrive and then paying a small fortune for it. No, in the gospel, God has declared us to be citizens of heaven. And now we are to live. We're to live out our citizenship of heaven here on earth. That is the one big thing that Paul wants to drive home again and again and again. And the way that he does it here is by teasing out two consequences of our new status, two practical applications of our citizenship in heaven. And the first is this. Citizens of heaven stick together for the gospel. Citizens of heaven stick together for the gospel. Look down at verse 27 again. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. So Paul there is saying that citizens of heaven stick together for the gospel. It's not merely a question of having a common interest that's drawn them together, so it's, it's not like bird watching uh, or amateur dramatics or soccer or other interests that we might pursue with other people who like the same thing. It's not that. And it's not geography that's drawn them together either. In other words, it's not that this group of people all happen to live within 10 minutes minutes of each other, or that they all come from the same ethnic group. No, what's drawn them together is the gospel. And let me remind you that the gospel brings opposites together. It's for black and white, rich and young and old, cops and criminals, homeowners 
and the homeless. Because, you see, God is in the business of reaching down from heaven and thrusting free heavenly passports into the hands of people from all walks of life all around the world. And if I'm a citizen of heaven, and you're a citizen of heaven, and that person over there is a citizen of heaven, and that person there is a citizen of heaven, well, we are all united in the gospel. In the language of verse 27, we're standing firm in one spirit. Together we're one in Christ. And you see what Paul is saying is that together we are to live out what we actually are. And friends, can I say that this is God's word to us this morning. We've got to listen to this. You see, the gospel is not about you individually being saved for an individual relationship with God. That's not it. It's about God enacting his restoration plan for the entire human race, drawing people together from all around the world into a new humanity. See, without this sovereign work of God, many of these people have absolutely nothing in common at all. By nature, they might not spend any time together. But in the gospel, God brings us together and he makes us one. But notice that it's not unity for its own sake. We're not just united in the gospel. No, we're stuck together for the gospel. Can you see that in verse 27? He says, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. And friends, I think this is extremely challenging because Paul is saying whether I visit and observe these things firsthand or whether I only hear reports about what's happening, I will know whether you're doing this or not. You see, Paul is not remotely interested in how well these people can play the religious game when the apostle is in town. He wants to know whether this is their normal, natural practice. Because the unity of the Philippians has a goal. What is it? Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now, we've already seen earlier in the letter that Paul is passionate about spreading the gospel, about the gospel bearing fruit, about uh, the gospel leading to faith. And the logic, you see, in verse 27 is that Paul's in prison. So he can't come and do the evangelism in person. No, the progress of the gospel in Philippi lies entirely in their hands. But you see, if that's going to happen, they're going to have to work together. They're going to have to witness together. They're going to have to engage with each other's non-Christian friends together, and so on. 
In short, they need to stick together for the gospel. So can I ask you this morning, is your gospel witness a solo effort? Now, of course, we have the occasional evangelistic service here at St. Barnabas. We've got one coming up on the 17th of October when, God willing, Bishop Frank will be our preacher. And as he is without question one of the most effective evangelists in South Africa, I've no doubt we're all going to be inviting non-Christian friends and family to come and be part of that. But apart from those one-off evangelistic services, it may be that your evangelism is really you on your own with your own friends. There's nothing wrong with that. But can I say it's actually much harder to do? And I wonder if our evangelistic efforts might not be far more effective if we were more intentional about finding ways to help our non-Christian friends experience Christian community more naturally so that they see how we relate to one another, how we socialize together, how we forgive one another, how we worship. And if we did, if we did, Surely that would expose them to the gospel's reach and relevance in every area of life. Now, I know that's a big challenge. And it might mean that some of us actually have to make a little bit of an adjustment in the way that we think about church. Because, you see, it's terribly easy, isn't it, for us to have a kind of come-and-listen approach to church where essentially I'm coming to listen for me. Depending on my listening skills, I might learn a little bit more about God and his ways. But when I leave the building, life carries on pretty much as it did before. Now you see, obviously, if we all do that, verse 27 won't be happening. But if we strain the brain a little bit more, and look for ways to help our non-Christian friends experience Christian community, not just here on Sunday, but in our lives beyond this building, well, then I think we're starting to get a little bit closer to what Paul is talking about here. Two men who thought quite a lot about this are Tim Chester and Steve Timmis, and they've written a book called Total Church, and in it, they say these rather remarkable things. I hope it will appear on the screen. They say Western culture has become very compartmentalized. By the way, in case you're in any doubt, we are in Western culture here in Cape Town. It's become very compartmentalized. We divide our lives into work time, leisure time, family time, church time, and mission time. We want to spend more time on evangelism, but because this can only happen at the expense of something else, it almost never does. But rethinking evangelism as relationships rather than events radically changes this. Evangelism is not an activity to be squeezed into our busy schedules. It becomes an intention that we carry with us throughout the day. The same is true of church. If church and mission 
are redefined in relational terms, then work, leisure, and family time can all be viewed as gospel activities. Ordinary life becomes pastoral and missional if we have deliberate gospel intentions. Watching a film with friends or looking after a burdened mother's children can simultaneously be family time, leisure time, church and mission. Well, that's quite right, isn't it? Friends, however it happens, we've all got to hear Paul's challenge to us this morning, that citizens of heaven stick together for the gospel. Can I hear an amen? Thank you very much. Secondly, citizens of heaven stand strong in times of opposition. Citizens of heaven stand strong in times of opposition. Look down with me, please, at the end of verse 27 and verse 28, where the apostle says, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, now here it is, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So, if verse 27 is about gospel unity, verse 28 is all about gospel courage. You see, for the Philippians, the pressures... Just wait and see what's happening out there. For the Philippians, the the pressures were very real indeed. We don't know precisely who these opponents were that uh, we're told about in verse 28, but apparently they were frightening. And uh, as the Roman emperor at the time was Nero, who, as we all know, unleashed horrific persecution against Christians, it may well be that the opponents were Roman officials, because Philippi was a Roman colony, and their opposition was probably violent. Now, whether that's right or not, Paul wants these Christians to remember that citizens of heaven stand strong in times of opposition. Uh, As verse 28 puts it, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now, let's think about that. How on earth does that work? How is it possible not to be frightened when the bullies from Rome come knocking on your door late at night? Or when you're constantly being mocked? Or when your non-Christian friends and family exclude you? And perhaps it's impossible for you to get a job. Under those conditions, you would actually have every reason to be frightened, wouldn't you? So I don't want to be either glib or superficial about this, but I do think that the answer is that citizens of heaven know deep down that ultimately opposition is limited. I mean, what is the worst that opponents can do to you in the end? They they can kill you. 
But you see, last week we saw, didn't we, that for the Christian, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Fear is nearly always focused on the future, isn't it? When we're frightened, it's usually about what might happen to us at some point down the road. What if my family is torn apart by the opposition? What if I lose my job? What if I lose my freedom? What if my friends cut me off and won't have any more to do with me? Now, I think when we're facing those kinds of pressures, fear is a very natural response because, of course, those things are outside our control. We can't control the future. But my dear Christian brothers and sisters, citizens of heaven know where they're going. They know how amazing our ultimate future actually is. And it's knowing that which gives us backbone in times of opposition. Now, after all, wasn't this exactly what the Lord Jesus said? In case we've forgotten, let's remind ourselves. Let's keep one finger in Philippians. Turn with me, please, to Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. We know these words, but we forget them when the pressure's on. So let's look at Matthew, chapter 10, verse 28 and following. Jesus says... Wait a moment for you to all get there. Matthew 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. What's he saying? He's saying your heavenly father has not only prepared a wonderful future for all of his children, but he's also in complete control of every last detail of our lives between now and then. So don't be afraid. That's what he's saying. In 2009, uh, the world listened in amazement to the audio recording from the cockpit of U.S. Airways Flight 1539. Uh, This was the plane, you may remember, that made an emergency landing on the Hudson River in New York City. Miraculously, every single one of the 155 passengers on board were saved. They were safely evacuated. Praise God for that. Humanly speaking, the hero of the hour was the pilot, a man by the name of Captain Chesley Sullenberger, uh, known to his friends as Sully. What's so remarkable about that audio clip is how incredibly calm he was in the face of imminent disaster. Uh, The control tower urged him to turn around and find his way back to the airstrip in New Jersey. He says he can't, and then famously, very calmly says, we may end up in the Hudson. There's no emotion, 
There's no panic in his voice. It was an astonishing example of strength under pressure. And uh, perhaps that's the reason that uh, Clint Eastwood made a film about this, starring the marvellous Tom Hanks. Gillian and I watched it on Friday. We warmly commend it to you. But you see, it is that kind of calm, that kind of heroic confidence that Paul says is to characterize our Christian response to opposition. How many times do we hear about the countries where it is most difficult to be a Christian in the world today? Persecution is red hot, getting hotter all the time. And yet our brothers and sisters are not striking back in anger for the most part. They're not shrinking back in fear. And instead, they're standing strong with gospel confidence that God sees what's happening, that he knows all about it. And they're trusting that in the end, God will ensure that justice is done. So, citizens of heaven stand strong in times of opposition and citizens of heaven stick together for the gospel. That is the call that we're hearing from God this morning. That is the one big thing that Paul wants to drum into us. Now you might be thinking, well that's all well and good, Simon. But whether you're a first century Christian in Philippi feeling the squeeze or a 21st century Christian in Cape Town, the big question is, how do I do that? How do I stand strong in times of opposition? Because at first sight, all of us think that this is really hard. This is going to be really difficult for us to do. I mean, why bother if people are going to mock us and exclude us? Um, Is this really what the Christian life is all about? How can anybody do it? And the apostle has anticipated the question. And very briefly at the end of the passage, given us three motivations to encourage us that we really can live as citizens of heaven under pressure. The first, living this way shows you are on God's side. Look at the second half of verse 28. Paul says that when you live like this, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. What he's saying is you standing strong in the face of opposition can function as the greatest wake-up call imaginable to your opponents. It's a sign that something supernatural is going on. People look at us or look at you and say, what an, you know, why on earth don't these people give up? It's not natural to do what they're doing. But you Christians, you seem to be different. And very gradually, the penny begins to drop that Christians belong to another place. They belong to another country. And as they realize that... So they also realize that being an enemy of Christians might not be quite so smart after all. So living this way shows that we're on God's side. Now you might say, well, okay, but 
if God allows all of this opposition into my life, all this hostility, is that perhaps a sign that he's displeased with me after all? Well, secondly, Paul says, living this way is actually God's gift. It's not a punishment. It's a loving gift from your loving Heavenly Father. Look down with me at verse 29. What a verse. What a verse this is. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Have you got the picture? Faith in Jesus is a gift from God. And suffering for Jesus is also a gift from God. Some people really don't like the idea very much of faith as a gift. They like to think that faith is something that they worked out as a result of their superior intellect. But the New Testament everywhere says that if you believe in Jesus, it was not your doing. God gave you the gift of faith. But just as he gives us the gift of faith in Christ, so he also gives us the gift of suffering for Christ. Both of them are gifts from our loving Heavenly Father, who won't even allow a sparrow to fall to the ground apart from his will. Now that doesn't mean that you and I have to think of suffering as really nothing at all. It doesn't mean that. But friends, this is what it does mean. It does mean that during the very, very real pressure of Christian suffering that I know all of you have experienced in different ways, we never, never say, God has walked out on me. We never say that. We say it's precisely because God loves me. It's because he cares for you. It's because he wants to nurture you so that you grow spiritually. Because the faith to believe and the suffering that we endure are also accompanied by sustaining grace to persevere through the trial. These are all gifts that God gives to those who are citizens of heaven while we wait for our final home. So friends, take courage. In your times of suffering, God is actually much, much closer to you than you might think. And then lastly, living as a citizen of heaven has already been modelled by other people. You see, Paul isn't just giving us a few blessed thoughts from the comfort of his study. He knows what he's talking about because this has been his own spiritual journey right from the very beginning. So look how the paragraph ends verse 29 and 30. He says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. They knew Paul had suffered for Christ in the past after all, he'd only been in Philippi a few days when he was thrown, thrown into prison and beaten up the first time. And they also know about his present suffering in prison in Rome. And the point is that as Paul shows himself to be 
a role model of the, the faithful Christian servant, the citizen of heaven suffering for the gospel. His example is saying to us, it can be done. Someone's done it before. Someone's ahead of you. They've been through the agony. In fact, they're going through it right now, and he's enduring. Therefore, you can do it too. It can be done. And next Sunday morning, God willing, Paul will point to the greatest citizen of heaven, the Lord Jesus, and his example of standing strong in the face of the worst opposition imaginable. But my dear friends, this morning and during the week ahead, let us fix our minds on this gospel gift that will change your life, which is being a citizen of heaven. Because if you're a Christian, that is what you are. And being a citizen of heaven means being a people who walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So we stick together for the gospel and we stand strong together in the face of opposition. Well, let's pray. Our gracious God, we do praise you for giving us the best possible gift in the gospel of your Son. We thank you that it has changed our future guaranteeing us a place in the new heavens and the new earth. And we recognize that this gift also changes our lives here and now. And so we pray that as citizens of heaven, we would stick together for the gospel. Please change us where we need to be changed. And in times of opposition, help us to stand strong together not in our own strength, but drawing on all the resources you provide to keep us pressing on. And all these things we ask for Christ our Saviour's sake.